Welcome to The Black Athlete, a podcast where we put the past into the present of black sports. I'm Lewis Moore. I'm Derek White. We're sports historians here to give you the historical context for contemporary black athletes. And welcome back to The Black Athlete. I'm Lewis Moore, author of I Fight for a Living and We Will Win the Day. And you can check out my Audible on the African-American athletes on Amazon. And welcome back. This is Derek White, author of The Challenge of Blackness, as well as Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Jay Gaither, Florida A&M, and the History of Black College Football. Welcome back, Lou. Ah, uh, man, it's good to be back. I mean, it's uh, it's been a minute since we've done this, and so, uh, but we are standing on the uh, the day after um, uh, the one year anniversary of George Floyd. And we had to bring on, uh, a distinguished colleague to help us, uh, to use this as an academic term to unpack what has happened over the last year in, uh, the sports world. And, um, so we've got on, uh, the incomparable, uh, Carl Sudler Emory university, who has a fantastic, uh, op-ed in the Washington post this week about the one year anniversary. Welcome Carl. Thank you, Derek. Thank you for having me. Always a good time to hang out with you and Lou. Good stuff, man. A lot has happened since our last episode. Uh, I can't even think about how many weeks it's been, but uh, uh, do we want to run through really quickly some of the major events that have happened? I want to say, Lou, can you give us a few words on the passing of uh, track legend Lee Evans? Oh, yeah. Oh, so Lee Evans, if you guys listeners don't know, I know he gets... So we, uh, I would say he gets, I don't want to say how does, how do I say this pushed to the side, but we, he's most people remember John Carlson, Tommy Smith, and even Peter Norman when we talk about the 1968 Olympics, but Lee Evans is just important to those Olympics and to the Olympic projects for human rights, which was the athletes coming together, right? We'll call it the male athletes, black male athletes coming together, deciding to protest the Olympic Games. Lee Evans was the one of the key leaders of those movements. And Lee Evans also protested on the medal stand after he broke the world record in the 400. We don't remember it as much because he was wearing a, uh, the black beret like the Panthers wore him and the other guys who, who got um, silver and bronze. And they took it off. During the national anthem, he's smiling, but he wasn't smiling because he was happy. He was smiling because he believed that somebody was going to shoot him. And as he said before, if he was smiling, maybe they wouldn't shoot him. Now, I always think of Lee as being in the toughest spot because the way I see it, everybody wanted him to do something, right? It was His race was after John Carlos, the day after uh, Carlos Smith, I believe. But that pressure was on him. What are you going to do? They set the bar higher by raising their fists, right? Being part of this iconic moment. But I also, I think a lot of, how do you say, haters or, or the press, right? Just the normal media who were upset at Carlos Smith kind of wanted him to do Something like that, right? They were waiting for it just so they could get even more upset, right? Just to, to you know, like a Brent Musburger calling them, uh, what, black skin stormtroopers. Mm-hmm. Like, you get that sense that they were waiting uh, for that. And when he didn't do anything like that, they were like, yeah, and, and moved on. Um, <clears throat> so because of that, because there's no iconic photo, um, he's not remembered like Smith and Carlos, even though he was there every step of the way, right? There's no statue of him. 
Um, even though he broke the record, even though, like I said, he was mm. part of the key uh, moments there. Um, so yeah, that's 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 Lee Evans. I think he's one of the great track athletes of all time. He's one of these people that time's forgotten. And Lee himself went over to 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 teach and track or coach track in, in Africa and and spent many years um, helping out Olympians in various countries there. No, that's a great rundown, and I think it leads into uh, you know the nineteen sixty eight uh, Olympics uh, were and 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 are really the iconic moment of athletic uh, activist athlete protests that we as scholars, but also the lay 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 folks who are paying attention to this, uh, point to when we talk about athletes using their platform. And what we saw this time uh, last year in the wake of the tragic murder of George Floyd was the entire uh, world uh, coming out in protest. And at the front, in, in many cases, a lot of the camera attention, at least uh, media attention, was on uh, the number of athletes who came out uh, and used uh, their, their time away from the game amid this pandemic uh, to to really go out and protest. Uh, and so we have Carl on to talk about uh, what has happened. Um, Carl, can you, for our listeners talk who may not have had a chance to read your Washington Post, can you give us um, uh, a quick uh, summary of, of what you what you argue in that fantastic op-ed uh, yesterday? Yeah, so I, I knew there were going to be tons of people writing you know, remember George Floyd one year and, and kind of reflecting on the moment. And I was right in the sense because there were op-eds popping up in, in every publication you could think of. Um, but for me, I wanted to, you know, really use the space to do two things, right? I wanted to use the space to kind of look at Floyd's life as an athlete, right, which is relatively unknown. I know the Undefeated did several uh, articles about it last year, um, which, you know, served as a really good kind of entry point for me to kind of really get to thinking about it. Um, Because I always think of these pieces as, you know, they're tragic in the sense that they shouldn't be done anyway, right? Like the, the, the thing with George Floyd is George Floyd should still be here, right? The fact that we're writing these things at all um, to speak to kind of the unfortunate tragedy. So I wanted to make sure whatever I did, I was able to kind of reflect on Floyd's life in some way, shape or form, right? I didn't want to spend all of the time thinking about just his death. Um, and in so doing, I wanted to think about how George Floyd's story as an athlete um you know, was really sort of emblematic in many ways of kind of the real fine line between, you know, how one can, you know, or what what happens for one who makes it and what happens to one who doesn't, right? Um, and, you know, and I think that story sat with so many athletes, professional athletes and otherwise, in so many different ways that it, it really did kind of um, gravitate and pull in the sports world in a different kind of way, not only for like the recent history, but like historically speaking in general. No, I think I think you made an excellent point about the challenges facing uh, athletes, you know, whether they're young athletes as they as they mature. Right. One of the things that I often uh, have told students at my various stops who have dreams of being a professional is that like, look, 
what are you going to do for the for the you know if you make it ten years in professional football or basketball? What are you going to do for the next thirty years after that? Right, and it's a transition, right? Like the transition from an identity uh, of uh, of us playing a sport to a regular citizen. Um, uh, me is a is a hard transition for a lot of folks, right? I mean, you know, and this is compounded by race, right? And I think one of the pieces that you pointed, one of the kind of um, uh, points that you make in your op-ed that I thought was fascinating is the kind of, uh, there was a study, I think in 2018, about uh, the size of Black uh, folks and the ways in which that shapes the response um, uh, from police and police forces. Can you talk a little bit about that study and, and how athletes, uh, many athletes are, uh, you know, are impacted by this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the study, um, again, it's 2018. There were, uh, two folks, I want to say one was from, I'm blanking on their names off the top of my head, but there were, one was at University of North Carolina, um, but they looked at stop and frisk data in New York City over like a five year period. And what they realized was that, or, you know, well, what they found in the study, the study was like three pronged, but what they found in the study on one side was that um, the tall, like taller black men in this particular instinct, um, you know, the, the taller you were, the more likely you were to have had police contact via the height of stop and frisk in New York City. Um, but what really stood out about this, right, and, and not only the police contact, right, but, but, but they talked about it as well as, you know, the taller you were, the more likely it was to impact threat perception by the police, right, as well, right? So not only increased contact, um, it also kind of, you know, could could impact how the police were going to respond to you if they were responding to you already. Um, and what floored me was thinking about, like, the height marker for tall was 6'2", right? <laughs> and so, 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 so what really threw me off was, like, if we're thinking about sports, if we're thinking about Black men in sports in a particular, we're talking about almost nearly all of them, right? Or at least a really high percentage, right? Um, and... You know, and, and so what, what stood out to me when I was thinking about that study in relation to reflecting on George Floyd was just how often his size came up in the trial, right? From the opening statement when, you know, his uh, defense attorney was literally like, you know, they had to use excessive force because he was so much bigger, right? Um you know, Derek Chauvin was only 5'9", 160-something pounds, right? Like, he needed excessive force because of Floyd's size, right? Floyd, you know, Chauvin's body camera, you know, captured audio from Derek Chauvin being like, we had to control this guy because he was a sizable guy, right? Like, there, there was all of these kind of markers about how Floyd's size came into it. And what really hit was, you know, when thinking about Floyd the athlete, those were all the same types of markers that his coaches were, you know, cheering for, right? That his coaches were excited about, um, that the fans were excited about, that people in the community are excited about. Um, and, you know, and, and so to kind of see that connection was um, startling. 
No, yeah. and I want to I want to note I want to clear it up real quick, but but before you come in, Luke, uh, that Neil Hester of McGill University and Kirk Gray okay. of University of North Carolina are the authors of that study, 2008, for black men being tall increases threat stereotyping and police stops from February of 2018. Uh, we try to get some actual facts on this show every once in a while. <laughs> you got a little research uh, budget. Go That's ahead, a Luke. <laughs> I was going to say when when you brought that up um, and that that's what stuck out to me in that article. I mean, a lot of things did in that illustrious 1400 word piece. But um, it reminds me of, you know, taking weights out of prison. Right. Like you take you take you take the weight room out of the prisons because somehow you think that lifting weights will make uh somebody more violent right like and that's that's you know and that's what they, they would say when they were taking these weights that all of a sudden you're more you're you're more criminal the other thing is that hit me is the whole point of having youth sports not i mean now it's you know you want them to go to the nba but the, the original i teach this all the time in my, in my sports history class is is these these ideas about discipline right these ideas about what you know we have sports for youth because we think this is what's going to change if it's a boy from boys to men right that that strenuous life whether it's teddy roosevelt or it's jfk writing in uh sports illustrated 1960 right after he wins the election the soft american we have you know 60 minutes of play we had the president's council for youth fitness we put a lot into youth sports in this country not just for our kids to go pro Right. But because we believe it instills value. But what stands out is at a certain point, if you're a young black kid, that athleticism is now part of their criminality. Right. The way they're perceived instead of, oh, this kid is he plays sports. So he played football and basketball. Right. That's that's discipline. That's camaraderie. That's all these things that we like in individuals in this country. But all of a sudden, because he's black and he's what six two, six three, now he's perceived as a criminal. And I think that's just that's just you know that's just how how race operates, right? Like 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 that black athletic body is is criminalized and been criminalized, right? It, it is it is that Jack Johnson narrative, you know, passing through uh, American history. I, I want to add something else too, real quick, Carl, and and to get your thoughts on this. And I think this is, is, is something I think as well important that, that not only is this a situation where we see this long legacy of, uh, of, you know, Jack Johnson and black athleticism is being criminalized, but it also points to the fact that like, uh, did we ever verify that Derek Chauvin worked an off duty job with George Floyd? Right. Like, so that like even when you work with him, he became like his size and his blackness made him invisible. He's no longer the person that you, you know, work the door with at some random bar or whatever that they were working in. Right. Like to me, I think that speaks to the kind of general invisibility. And one would think that like, oh, he's tall. Like we always talk about the tall kids stand out in school, right? Like there's so many stories of, especially in, uh, you know, in the history books before we had like, you know, AU starting at like age six, where we're tr- everybody's trying to be on the path to be professional of, of, you know, the guy in the hallway being stopped by the coach, like, do you play football? Right. You know, I'm, right. uh, you know, at, at, I'm in Lexington and 
and and the greatest football player to ever come out of my high school is Damani Dawson. And Damani Dawson was walking in the hall one day and the football coach stopped him and was like, do you play football? And he was like, I've never played football before. He was like, I want to see you at practice tomorrow. And the rest of that is literally history, like high school, right? Like, and, and so the fact that like, you could talk to this person on a semi, uh, on a number of occasions and still not recognize him and only see him as a threat. And that is enhanced by his height. Um, I think that is uh, tremendously tragic, but it also speaks to the ways in which race you know, uh, you know, to use our way we like to be colorblind literally blinds us from the kind of humanity of any of these kinds of folks. Um, and so, yeah, Carl, I, I, I love that part, but come on in. Yeah, yeah. No, I was going to say, and to that point, right, I, I think, you know, part of why that study stood out was exactly this, right? Like, you know, if, if, if police contacts are actually increased um, when we're thinking about, like, the size of you know, the, the person on the other side of said stop. Um, what is what, you know, what, what really drove the point home for me here and why I wanted to be sure to include it was, um, was it actually didn't increase the contact in Floyd's case, right? The, you know, in Floyd's case, they were responding to this, you know, alleged counterfeit 20, right? Um, but what it did do, and you know, what is difficult to pull, to pull away from is that it did impact the perceived threat, right? Over and over and over again. Um, and so I talk about this in the piece, but like the, the, the center argument or one of the set of arguments is, is the forces unattractive theory, right? That, that police officers can use this type of excessive force uh, and it's going to look bad to bystanders, right? It's going to look bad on video, but we need that type of force because of how big said person is, right? And that's really the part of the argument, right? That that actually, you know, resonates here because it didn't increase the contact in this particular case. But what it did do was, and it was central to, you know, again, the defense's argument that, you know, we had to be excessive um, because, you know, the three officers that responded weren't enough, right? They weren't mm-hmm. enough for this, you know, um, Six three, two hundred and twenty three pound, you know, uh, George Floyd. Um, and to the point about youth sports, uh, something that didn't make it into the article was um, in, a, in local coverage around George Floyd's uh, murder last year. Was one of his teammates from middle school um, was quoted and said he just never remember seeing a twelve year old that tall. Mm. Right. And so, like, you know, George Floyd was always a bigger kid. Right. Was always a bigger guy. Um, and, you know, and it, and it sits right. Like typically, if you talk to people who knew him, right, Big Floyd is built in. Right. Like Big Floyd was the nickname. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like we all know a big somebody. Right. Like, you know, that's a, such a common kind of nickname that, you know, we attach to so many people. Um, you know, in our communities, in our circles of friends, right? We all got a big someone. We all got a little someone. Um, and so, um, yeah. So, so, so that was something that you know I really wanted to kind of reflect on on his life as an athlete. Um, again, because it was a story that resonated so well um, with athletes, you know, today, right? Like, you know, and that's where you know, I, and, and I do think. You know, that's not the reason, but that's def- certainly part of the reason, right? Obviously, the most direct connect was Stephen Jackson, um, but I'm sure we'll get to it in different 
moment. I, I want to back up on this point about that you made in, a, in reference in an earlier case where we didn't see the same kind of activism, but it speaks to this notion that big, you know, you talked about Big Floyd, where he was always the biggest kid. It thinks about the the study uh, that came out. I want to say somehow in the last in the last five or six years uh, that spoke to the fact that. Uh, white see black children as older, right? So this is Tamir Rice, right? Like the Tamir Rice case is, you know, uh, even the report was that he's a kid playing, it's probably the gun, but you should make sure. And they came up, the car didn't stop. And uh, they shot him before they could even say, you know, put your hands up, right? And so Tamir Rice uh, um, uh, speaks to the fact that even children, right, both male and female, are often perceived as being considerably older uh, than what they actually are. And so we, you know, I think this is, I think there's a, a there's a long thread about blackness and per, and threat perception. I think that you're really tech and you're really tacking on, and that athletics and height is one of those, but blackness and age is another, right? That that you know at, at youth, and so I think that. That that this gets to lose point about how we we pre- we present youth sports as an antidote to the kinds of um, uh, chaos that could infect young people's lives in neighborhoods that are that are not you know pristine right uh, and so if they you know this is why we have the police I mean you talk about this in your book this is why you have police athletic league and this is why you have all these kinds of things but none of that actually impacts. What in in this case of the study by the the two scholars, the 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 contact, and then in your point, the kind of contact, right? The force being used in that contact is also ratcheted up. Um, yeah, ahead, let me just ahead, on that point. I'll just say, like every movie we have about black youth in sport is 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 pretty much are the ones people really love. Is that narrative where? that sport is their their way out of trouble, right? Not necessarily the pros, whether it's Finding Forrester or it's, uh, what's that movie? Everyone, I've never seen a Keanu Reeves movie. Uh, but, uh, Hardball. 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 Uh, the one Blind with the side. rock, uh, the blind side, uh, uh, gridiron gang, um, Coach Carter, like all these movies, it's the same narrative. I'm going to give you sport to discipline you but also because you're a criminal too, right? Like this, like criminality is just surrounding them because they're young and they're black. And somehow by playing sports, it's going to escape that. Right. But then we get back to what Carl's point about Floyd is that he put two years in Juco and now what? Right. And I love that quote that you had from Harry Edwards, right. From 69. And that's what they were talking about. That's part of the revolt of the black athlete, right. That is literally like the main part of the revolt of the black athlete comes out, you know, they're, you know, SI, again, I've mentioned this all the time, they have the shameful story of the black athlete in 1968. And one of one of the key things that is that comes out of there when it talks about education, right, is you bring these kids to college, you don't graduate them, and then they're just at home doing doing nothing, right? They're 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 struggling because all you do is see them as an athlete. And then they don't see what's next for them, right? So the revolt, right? To bring it back to, to we talked about Lee Evans, right? The revolt is that you're just using me and not giving me anything out of this, right? And so we're gonna we're gonna leave sports. We're not trying to reform it. We're we're just leaving. You can no longer use me, but we're still here. Uh, what if my math is correct? Sixty years later, right? Part of the problem, or fifty years later, part of the problem is that. 
that never goes away. That that part about sport. Oh, oh, you're six two. You should play football. You should play basketball. But there's never a then what. It's just like let me get you out here. Sometimes we talk about the discipline aspect of it, but but really it's just getting these kids out there. Now, and I'm not saying that sports doesn't discipline because we know they do. Right? We know that having the ability to play sports in high school keeps a lot of kids in, right? So, so 2.0, we all do 2.0, but 2.0 keeps kids in the school, right? Whereas otherwise, right, if you don't make the grade, the C average, then you might drop out of school because you're not you're not playing basketball anymore. And so, so some some schools even lower, right, that GPA to 1.5, right, because you're just trying to keep kids in school. But the point is that you're trying to make that you've made it so well is that society sees that athleticism as criminal and they deal with them as such right and and that's that's the problem the other thing is we talk about those those young kids is one of the things that come came out a couple months or about a month ago with makia bryant just trying to remind everyone she's 16 right mike brown's Mm -hmm. a teenager and and we treat him like this some kind of like super adult or is like a super super predator right to 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 take uh <laughs> hillary's words right this this narrative of how we see young kids how we see you know uh, black athletic bodies um has is 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 troubling right and it leads to what we see here in, in some cases death yeah and to that to that point right that's you know i always get that question right the first book is all about that Right. Like in the sense of, you know, understanding issues around criminality and the criminalization of young people. Um, and, and so when people ask me, like, so how did you get into like these sports history realms? And I'm just like, how could I not? Right. There was there was this seamless transition from understanding how the juvenile legal system saw itself and saw the use of sport, um, not only as a means of discipline, but also as a means of surveillance. Right. And so, you know, police athletic leagues, I'll, I'll always remember this story. Like, you know, I, I like, you know, my father's I've, I've shared this on the pod, I think, before, but my father's a military guy. Um, you know, I have uncles who are police officers. And, you know, if I talk about police athletic leagues, right, they love. Them, right. You talk, you know, one generation back to, you know, black folks in different communities, they're going to, you know, rave about police athletic leagues. And so I remember when I was writing about police athletic leagues in that first book. And I remember like having, you know, a dinner time conversation with my sister and my, you know, my parents and my dad's like, oh, yeah, I hope you're not writing anything bad about those pal leagues. Right. And, and my, my <laughs> sisters, and, and, you know, and I just remember my sister just being like, you know, the pal leagues are like where all the drug dealers go and sell drugs. Right. And, you know, and in my mind, I was just like, they're actually both. Right. They're actually a, a really dope space in, in some ways. Right. That do provide these sort of outlets for all the reasons that we've just discussed. But they're also kind of a heightened surveillance in which the police actually take advantage of, you know, attendees in various ways. Right. And so not only is it there's like a discipline model, it's also a surveillance model, because what the what, what Powell allows is in various communities to find out who the kids are in the first place. Yeah. Right. And so and and so, you know, like when we look at how they track like the attendance records, like those those like files become like, you know, massive by the you know mid 20th century. Like they start off with like, we just need to know your name and what school you go to. 
right? And then they become, well, what are your grades this marking period? You know, how, what do your parents do? Or what do you like? And, and it just becomes like this heightened surveillance kind of platform, um, which, you know, the flip side is the community calls for, right? Because when we think about like, how do you fix issues of crime in the community? We always get the same four things. We need better jobs. We need better school. We need better health. We need more recreational centers. And the mm-hmm. state almost always responds to the rec center. We'll give you all parks, right? Because it, you know, we'll give you spaces because it allows us to kind of surveil in ways um, in a much more controlled manner, right? So this is so when people ask me how I get into the sports world, it's just like it was a natural kind of seamless transition um, from studying issues of criminalization of young people. Um, and so that's, you know, book 2.0 on the way after yeah, my yeah, sabbatical next year. Go ahead, go ahead. Cause, cause my man kept saying first book, first book, first book. And I'm like, Hey, he got, he got, uh, he, I thought we was going to get that. I thought we were going to get an announcement like, Hey, special to the black athlete podcast. So, so, so two things, Carl, right. One, uh, for our listeners, uh, tell, tell them to title your book. And then two, uh, I have a question about that. It's not only about surveillance, but it's also about cultivating informants, right? Wouldn't that be part of the surveillance that I think that gets overlooked, right? Like they know which kids they can call on in eight years and be like, yo, what's going on in the neighborhood? You remember I was your coach, da, 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 da. Like when you say surveillance, I think a lot of people may not be fully anticipating the kind of uh, the layers of surveillance that you're talking about, that it's not only about them surveilling the kids who, who take a wrong turn, who came through the police athletic league at one point, but it's also about creeping track with the kids who may be the straight and narrow, who can then give them information, uh, what they want to know about like who's so-and-so in the neighborhood. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I mean, and, and, you know, projects of surveillance are, deep, right? And perverse in so many ways in terms of what actually gets tracked. But but certainly this this idea of like being able to identify um, the good kid, right? And and thinking about what that good kid can then offer. Um, you know, I, I write about this in the book. You know, I remember Sammy Davis, there was a quote, like a Sammy Davis Jr. quote, I think. What's the name of the, the book? book. Uh, the, the, title, the title of the first book is Presumed Criminal, Black Youth in the Justice System, Post-War New York. Um, but, uh, I remember Sammy Davis Jr. being like, you know, it was the squares that went to Powell, right? Like, you know, he called them squares and he was just like, uh, but you know, music saved my life. Um, and music kept me from being a cat on the corner. Mm -hmm. Right. And so there was this kind of element of like, you know, that surveil the, that, that opening these types of spaces for young people to kind of come in and confide in allowed the state a sort of luxury to separate them as well, right? Because who? what about the kids that don't want to come, right? Why don't they want to come play ball with us, right? They got to be up to no good in some way, right? Because the, the, the worst thing that you can give a kid is idle time, right? And that hasn't changed, right? You got to occupy idle time in some way, shape, or form, uh, and they know that sports is an off, you know, an, an outlet for that. Um, and it's always been since ever, right? Like, I mean, at least since like the, you know, modern day of sports. That, you know, Derek, that's such a, a great point that you bring up about surveillance and, and, and just kind of bringing around. Uh, I believe that happens in Bad Boy 3, by the way, uh, where... <laughs> Was uh, Martin's one of his ex players is the is the oh. gang member? Am I right? All right, but I I oh, yeah. I'd be 
I would be super interested to know like how many pro players, let's say football players, grew up with a cop on their coaching staff. I, I it's gotta be a great majority of these, especially the ones who come from the we'll say the quote unquote inner cities, right? Or or you know, it's gotta be really high. Um, because that's that's part of their job, right? They they do they do these these programs. They go coach these kids. Um, reading about Warren Moon, I mean, his first coach is a police officer, right? Like this is this is what from the sixties on. Right? You'll see this, right? So a lot of these guys come in close contact. Now, we in society are trained to look at this as very good. It's great that the police have this multi million dollar budget where they can go to the boys and girls club and have a police officer there. But now, you know, what what Carl suggests and, and and other folks are suggesting is that this is just really about an extension of surveillance, right? This is sometimes there are some good things that come out of this. But the other part about it is now now that you're a little kid, even when you play the most innocent things sport, you're in contact, you're under surveillance, right? Just because now you want to go to the local the local Y, the local Boys and Girls Club, one of these clubs that are out there, now you're under surveillance. And and as Derek said, sometimes they'll use you, now you're an informant, right? Um, or if you're not there, what's happening? It's not to say that, you know, folks aren't there to, to help out because there's plenty of, you know, police there who, who truly want to help these kids out. But their job is to police, right, at the end of the day. And what happens once those kids are no longer kids and their body is starting to look like an, an athlete, right? Or, or, or a man in year 12, you're Mike Tyson in year 12. It's not to say that Mike Tyson wasn't, you know, getting in trouble at 12, but I was just watching that documentary the other night and they're like, this kid looks like he's 21 and he's in whatever juvie uh, that he's in. Right. Um, and now your job is to look at him differently. Um, so, so it's, a, you know, it's a fascinating point that, that, that you bring up anytime I read that kind of stuff, I'm like, oh yeah. Right. And it makes you think, right. When you talk about budgets, so much conversation now about these, these local budgets. And then you look at it, it's like, okay, out here, I believe it's like 400,000 just to go for a couple cops to be at boys and girls club. But it's like, well, why can't you hire people? to interact with the youth. Like, like, why can't we, like, why does it have to be police officers? Why can't it be somebody in the community that we're hiring or, or a specialist to, to interact with these youths at the boys and girls club. Right. No, that, that was an excellent point. So let's change gears really quickly. Cause uh, before we get too long on, on this pod and talk about the athletes themselves, uh, uh, Carl, what do you see as the impact you hinted at this earlier, but I want to, I want to think of, take us through, uh, can you walk us through what you see as the the impact on athletes and what they did in the aftermath of this of George Floyd's tragic death? I, I, you know, we talk a little bit about the activism, but what do you see over the last year from those initial uh, participations and all those rallies that you said? That was between you know ten and twenty five million people participated all over the globe. Um, where do we see that athletes? You know, have they developed? Have they gone? Have they stagnated? You know, give us a little bit of the lay of land on on athletes and 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 their activism. Yeah, and so I, I get to talking a little bit about this in that piece as well. Um, really thinking about really thinking about kind of like the organized efforts, right? And so it's one thing, you know, to protest. It's another thing to organize, right? It's another, you know, so, and, you know, and, and 
what we saw over the last year was we actually see both, right? We see the athletes actually physically putting their bodies out and into the streets during these protests, right? Um, and cities big and small, right, across the across the globe, right? I can't even say across the country, but across the globe. Um, what I think is what, what what I think has really stood out has been the organizational like that like so so when i say organization i mean organizations on two levels right i think there, there's organization amongst the players right and stuff across leagues that we're seeing with like more than a vote um i talk about black players for change into peace um but there's also sort of like an organizational response from the leagues themselves that is new to this moment right like you know how legit or authentic is the league's commitment? Who knows, right? Who knows at this point, we're still way too close to it, right? We can make the case that the NBA has dropped, you know, the names and Black Lives Matter isn't on the courts in the way that it was in the bubble. Um, you know, but the backside of that is, you know, they have like a new social justice, um, you know, entire leg, right? That's built, broke off of the players union um, that gets big bucks, right? Um, from the league, from individual teams. Um, obviously, you know, the WNBA is still kind of front and center on taking the lead from its players. Uh, but one of the things that, you know, and, you know, full disclosure, I've been working with some players from like the Minnesota Vikings. Um, you know, a lot of the work that I saw these guys doing, uh, it, it has been really exciting. Right. And, um, one of the players is uh, Eric Hendricks. So Eric Hendricks has been all in on working with this organization called uh, All Square, which is a nonprofit in Minneapolis that invests in uh, formerly incarcerated people. Right? Um, they hire formerly incarcerated people. Uh, and, and once Eric started working with them, um, the Minnesota Vikings then threw money behind it as well. Right? And threw money into this organization. Um, you know, and, and and so, you know, the Minnesota Vikings started a George Floyd scholarship, right? We saw the Utah Jazz give out one scholarship for every win this year, right? Like, like they're like, as, as some of these things, like, you know, there's argument to be made that it's superficial, that it's, you know, surface level stuff, but it's still new, right? The, like these types of commitments are new. These types of commitments aren't, you know, I'm, I'm can use the, I'm old enough to remember when, when Colin Kaepernick took a knee and the whole world blew up over it. Right. Mm -hmm. Or even beyond that. I remember when, um, when Freddie Gray happened and Baltimore was like, you know, we can't let fans in the stands at, for the Orioles game. Right. Now leagues are like, we're postponing games. Right. Mm -hmm. This is new. Right. This is like, and so whether, you know, it's authentic or whether it's, you know, coming from the right place, I don't, I think we're still too close to know, but, but, but I think, you know, what we can say is that what we see is new in the sense um, of, of, of the type of support that they're getting right across kind of organization, across franchise uh, that these players are really getting. Um, and, and, you know, and to the point, right, like I, I jokingly say, I'm old enough to remember when Kaepernick took a knee, but, you know, if we think about really from Trayvon forward since the Miami Heat in 2012, some of these young guys in the league and young women in the league, they were teenagers in high school, right? This is all of their formidable years in life, right, has been this type of moment. And and, and I think, you know, it's important for us to realize that, like, they are now in positions where they're going to 
regularly hold these leagues and franchises accountable in different types of ways. Yeah, I, I think that's an important point to note, right? That these, you know, you know, not everybody in the league is LeBron James in year, what is it, 17 or 18, right? Like these these young folks, would, you know, I remember when I took my job in my previous institution, right? And those kids were so impacted by Trayvon Martin. Like that was what was driving their activism on campus. Well, those students are, are 27, 28 now, right? Like they're not, they're not, they're not 20 anymore, right? Like they're, they're adults heading towards 30. And I think that that, that population is what I often think about when we think about the league. And then the folks younger than them, we're talking about basketball guys who did one year of college, those guys are 20 and 21. They only know that, right? Like that's a decade ago. So they were 10, 11, 12. So they're coming up this, they were the same age or roughly the same age as a Trayvon Martin. So, you know, their parents have had to to have this conversation with them in a real way. Um, and I think that that is the shrinking of, uh, of the time between these in- incidents, I think is also very important in terms of the technology. Um, for those, uh, I'm the oldest of these podcasters, but you know, um, <laughs> but like, when we, <laughs> but when Rodney King happened, that was like tra- traumatic, right? Like, you know, you, I was going to college when that happened in 92, right? Like, and that was uh, utterly traumatic. But like, we knew police violence happened, but it was so localized in a real way that it didn't feel like you, you know, unless you had this massive moment. And I think that for this generation, since Trayvon Martin, that the the space, you know, had, and, and, and I think George Floyd, uh, and Breonna Taylor in 2020, and among others, Ahmaud Aubrey was jogging, right? The kind of act, you know, sporting, you know, con- participating in kind of recreational sports that that many of us uh, participate in. I think that all just speaks to this generation. I think your point about organizing amongst themselves, but also getting the leagues to commit to, um, you know, to supporting in places like Utah. Right. In places like Minnesota, in places that we had not seen kind of the hotbed of 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 athletic activism uh, before, I think speaks volumes to where we are, uh, uh, at least at this particular moment in 2021, a year after George Floyd. Lou, what do you got for us? Yeah, um, uh, tagging back in uh, part of the Harlem heat here. Uh, no, I, I think you're you're right. It's this new direction. Right. Um, of, of athlete activism. It's not that they never gave their time, right? It's, and Carl writes about it in his book, uh, you know, Jackie Robinson or Roy Campanella, you know, they, it's a big deal when they go to the local Harlem Y and give their time. Athletes were in the streets, right? Part of, um, what's going on in the 1960s, like Kareem, right? Um, is in the streets doing youth sports caps, all these, a lot of these guys, that's what they did. I mean, and it, it, but it's, what they focus on now, right? And that, and that's the change. And it's not to say that they still don't do their sports camps, but when you add the activism or um, what you talk about that Minnesota player about, you know, making sure these guys get get work, you know, prison, you know, people coming in from prison, making sure they can still work. When you, that's a change in activism. Now, you know, Doc Ellis, no one talks about this, but he, you know, he he tried to do the same thing in the seventies, but that's that's more of like a one off. Now it seems like it's a it's a normal thing. Like, okay, my activism will not only be, 
giving back my time to my community. I'll put on sports camps because, again, sports keeps kids out of trouble. But I'm also going after, you know, policing, right? Uh, and we think about this change. We talk about this, how they organize. And we think about this. In 19, what, 1965, they start the, the Black Economic Union, right? Now, it's the Negro Industrial Economic Union. Their focus is on the community, but their focus is on green power, right? It's probably the biggest athletic organization that you have, right, at that time. It was more than 100 athletes, tons of professional football players, right? Kareem's in it, Russell's in it, Jim Brown's in it. Now they'll focus, and they still talk about economics, but the next step, the biggest thing after that is going to be the vote. And when I say think about that, Black Economic Union develops after the night or right around the time you get the Voting Rights Act, right? Here we are 50 plus years later, and no longer there's a collective about attacking for green power. No one even talks about green power anymore. There was a little bit of that that talk in, in when Nipsey Hussle died, and there was more about you know black black economic power, not just saying green power. But the action, collective action, is more than a vote, right? And it's also not green power. It's dealing with policing, right? Because what we see is attacking or trying to green power away. And this is not me being anti-capitalist, by the way, you know, get your money, go invest, go invest in Doge or whatever your Bitcoin or whatever you do. But that doesn't change policing. I think (laughs) that's what we've learned, right? These last few years, what these athletes have been doing has been great, right? You got to go help the kids. You do the community, right? Vote economics, but it doesn't change policing. And now these athletes are trying to figure out a way where they can step in and change policing. Right. And I think that's the change that we've seen since 2012. I think it grew even quicker post George Floyd. And it's interesting. It's going to be interesting to see what happens as we move on. Right. And I say that as just the top of my head, because more and more of these athletes are investing their money. Right. We talk about these, they're moguls now. Like LeBron has a piece in the Red Sox. Uh, Renee Montgomery has a piece in Atlanta Dream. Uh, Kevin Gannett was trying to buy the Minnesota Timberwolves, right? These guys are making all kinds of crazy economic moves, which is awesome. But that doesn't change, right, what happens on the street. And I think the best thing moving forward, the way they got to approach this is the way Jackie approached these things. That's Jackie Robinson, right? That least of these approach to civil rights, right? I'm not free until the lowest person that they perceive is free, right? So you can do everything you, you, you want to do. You can make all your millions, you can make your billions, but your freedom is, it's tied to the George Floyd's of the world. And I think that's what they realize in that moment. Yeah. And, and to the, to that point, right? I think, so, so, so I think about this twofold. Right. As somebody who's invested in studying long histories of policing, um, studying movements around kind of abolishing the police and defunding the police, um, and also somebody, you know, super invested in the sports world. I, you know, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, activist, scholar, brilliant thinker, abolitionist. Right. Um, she says we have to change everything. Um and there's a part of me that understands 
why many athletes want to take the safe route, right? They have a lot to risk, right? They have a lot to lose. Um, and, you know, so, so I think about like, you know, it, it, it's easy for us to be, you know, incredibly critical of them getting behind more than a vote, right? Because voting, you know, as I wrote in the piece, right? Voting doesn't stop police killings, right? It didn't matter if it was Donald Trump in office or Joe Biden in office. But that was a that was a platform that athletes could ex, could use in an effective manner to get Donald Trump out of office, right? To flip Georgia blue. To like, you know, we can talk about why that was so important in terms of moving the needle even slightly, right? Um, obviously, that doesn't change policing, right? And so what we see now are all the athletes getting behind the George Floyd Policing Act. Right. Um, and, and trying to make sure we get that passed. Like a bunch of players yesterday were wearing call your senator shirts mm-hmm. um, about the George Floyd Policing Act and stuff. Right. This is a shift. Right. This is, you know, a shift away from just voting to policy change around policing. But as abolitionists and organizers and thinkers around these type of issues will tell you, the George Floyd Policing Act wouldn't even save George Floyd. <laughs> right. It's going to ban chokeholds. He didn't get killed by a chokehold. Right. It's going to, you know, ideally end qualified immunity, which is huge. Right. But but in a way, the George Floyd Policing Act is also throws a ton of a ton more money back into the police. Right. And for all of the folks on the ground that are arguing and yelling and screaming about defunding the police, this is counter to that. Right. But athletes are in a position where they have to use their platforms um, around these causes in very particular ways, right? And so something I think about, and this goes back to uh, Harry Edwards' um, Revolt of the Black Athlete as well, right? It's like, he talks about how the movements inform the platforms, right? And when there are movements in society that athletes can gravitate toward and use to their advantage, right? That's when they can be most effective, right? They need those community efforts, right? Athletes are never gonna be the far furthest left, right? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and in fact, you know, when they are, right? Like, and, and not all of them, right? You know, I think about somebody like Muhammad Ali, right? Like, you know, like when, you know, again, but there's, you're talking one of however many, right? But athletes are never going to be furthest left to the movement, largely because they can't, right? But that doesn't mean that what they're doing isn't effective, right? And isn't going to impact change. Um, I would love to see athletes called for defunding the police, right? Um, they can't. Right. Many of them cannot. Right. But that doesn't mean that instead of getting behind the George Floyd Policing Act, that they start putting some credence to the, you know, movement for black lives free that. Right. You know, it's it's a policy. It's a policy structure that's much more about investing in the community as opposed to throwing more money to the police in the way that the George Floyd Policing Act does. Um, And so when you have that platform, um, you know, I, I, I think it's, you know, I think there's there's sort of a connection that can be made, right? That's going to constantly be um, moving, right? But there are going to be folks outside, right? Or, you know, outside of the movement or, you know, on the further left or right or whatever you want to call it of the movement that are going to continue to push the needle, right? Athletes aren't going to be pushing the needle in that sense. But as long as we get them trending in that direction, uh, and getting the leagues in some way, shape, or form slanting, you know, in that direction, then those are you. We have to mark those as wins, right? We have to mark those as victories, right? Um, you know, we we can be cynical all day and be like, 
they took the Black Lives Matter, like, yes, they took Black Lives Matter off the court, right? But what are they doing, right? And, you know, and I think it's important to identify what they're doing. I think this is a good, let me, that's an excellent, I think that's an excellent, Carl, thank you for that. I think, you know, to to put a, like a historical bow on this, I, I'm reminded with Carl's last point to think about the the criticisms during the civil rights movement of the NAACP. And, and yet the NAACP, because of its strategy of taking, uh, you know, the segregationist laws to, to court and, and the money needed to do research and pay for lawyers and all that kind of stuff, right? That was an easy lane for, uh, you know, for liberals, both black and white, who are not comfortable with the more uh, with not comfortable with SNCC (laughs) per se, right? Like, or even not comfortable with Dr. King and direct action, right? Like that we could, we could funnel, but the NAACP was a, uh, was absolutely necessary for the kinds of gains that we think of as the traditional civil rights movement, right? That, you know, we talk about the voting rights act, we talk about the civil rights act, but you know, a lot of that, you know, Brown, like I always tell students when we think about Montgomery, right? Like they had that bus boycott, but it was the NAACP that filed a lawsuit that it, you know, like it, it requires, there's going to be different strategies. Not everybody's going to be playing the same notes on this, on this idea. And what you need is a platform. And I think that coming out of, uh, the 1980s and 1990s where, um, Athletes were 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 absent. There was no athletic discussion of the L.A. riots, <laughs> right? Like they had their own personal feelings, but there was no massive organizing after that. To, that, as you pointed out, Carl, I think so eloquently that they are uh, the movement has 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 provided. It's not just the athleticism and their professionalism, but the movement itself has provided a platform for these athletes to be engaged and begin to push the needle in a particular kind of direction. And I think that's an excellent, excellent point where we stand one year after George Floyd. Um, Lou, any final words? Oh, no, man, that was, that was great. Other than that, just tell, tell Carl, man, get your city in check, man. Let Dominique into any restaurant he wants. <laughs> <laughs> that's you. Yeah, that's I your know, it, you know, and I, I ain't even get, I didn't even get to drop the gem about having been at the Basketball Hall of Fame induction for my man Kobe and all oh. that. But, you know, it's okay. Uh, we'll, we'll save that uh. for a later pod, you know. But, uh, <laughs> when you said Dominique, you had me thinking about the Hall of Fame, you know. And so that's yeah. where my mind went. Wow. But, um, uh, you see, I, I just want right. I want listeners to know us, that Carl yeah. just dropped. That, that he flexed on us. I remember that when he needs a recommendation next time. I'm like, I'm flex on you. I want to like call the Hall of Fame and see if they can make you a recommendation. How about that? <laughs> right. Like, see if they can do that. Carl flexing on my podcast. I love it. I love it. No, man. Everybody, good listeners. And thank you, Carl, man. Go if you get a chance, listeners, please go out and and, and check out Carl Sudler's excellent op-ed in the Washington Post that uh that ran on March uh March on May 25th. Um, on the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's tragic death uh, in Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota. Thank you for listening. Peace. Peace.